day, day 47 of fighting the uh, the squirrels and chipmunks uh, in an, a valiant and heroic effort on my part to uh, grow some, You're the some fucking man. sunflowers. I'm the oldest man. I never thought I would I would hit this point so early in my life. But yeah, I just I, I just want to grow some goddamn sunflowers and these little shits just want to eat them. That's all they ever want to do. And so now I I'm trying to grow seedlings in the attic. You're going to try you're going sunflowers in your attic without sun. Yeah, well I'm start I'm starting them in a pot and there there's a window. We have like a little turret window in there. So uh Did you ever read Flowers in the Attic? No. It's a fucked up uh Yeah, I read that. Uh, That's good. That's good shit. Dark series. Yeah. yeah, dude. What's it about? It's about uh these children that grow up locked in an attic and it's got a lot of incest and like malnourishment. It's pretty wild. Well, that's also happening in our attic. Shh. Uh. Jesus. Talk about putting us on blast, David. Yeah, saying the quiet part loud. <laughs> so when you say sunflowers, that's code for uh cheese pizza. The, yeah. oh, okay, yeah, right. Oh, God. Um, <laughs> No, it would be cool to write like a flowers in the attic, except that the kids are up, are you know being stored below below uh, comet ping pong or whatever. Yeah, little little Saint James. <laughs> yeah, flowers I mean, in the like, attic on little Saint James Island. That would be that would be a cool book. There is yeah, something well, about like like when you're a kid, you want to read books about. I don't know why you you want this, but you want to read books and watch movies about like kids who are like captive of some terrible step parent and have to use their imaginations or like escape those circumstances somehow with their own ingenuity. Like that's a really, it's such a, it's so weird that you would want that when you're a kid. I don't know what that instinct is. Well, it's the idea of just like gross competence as opposed to incompetence, you know, like the kids just like dem- commanding the situation. Like, have you ever seen the movie surf ninjas? Of course. Like about yeah, the, these, right. Yeah. These three kids that like do all this crazy shit. They like, find a bunch of dynamite and they're like fighting all these ninjas and they're like basically like omnipotent gods you know like they can just sort of navigate in fact one of them actually has a sega game gear that can control reality and like uses the sega game gear to like fight a bunch of ninjas and like you know unleash a bunch of octopuses on them or some shit yeah yeah. uh, but yeah i think that's a common uh common desire of kids yeah, well, I mean, a, a, a desire to control your circumstances is, like, part of it, but, like, even if you, but, like, there are all kinds of stories, like A Little Princess and Flowers in the Attic and... Oh, I loved A Little Princess. Fanny and Alexander, the, the Swedish, like, epic of child abuse, um, <laughs> where, like, it's, it's, it's all about this, like, almost cap- just being prisoners and maybe... And every, I, maybe like, Grimm's fairy tale ever. Yeah, oh, yeah, right. yeah, yeah. Home Alone, Home Alone, Home Alone I think it's because childhood to a certain kind of kid feels like feels like imprisonment. It did yeah. for me. I guess that's me probably too. why. And I like as a child, I was so over dramatic and had such a victim complex that I like my mother, who's just a loving, wonderful woman and was a great mom. But between the ages of like twelve and sixteen, I was convinced that she was just like yeah, this yeah. wicked like jailer who yeah. you know. Right. So we should introduce <laughs> who this person is. <laughs> Uh, uh, f- f- formal, former child uh, uh, prisoner, <laughs> Mike Pearl. It's good to have my freedom. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> We're joined today by journalist and author Mike Pearl, who is the author of uh, the book The Day It Finally Happens, which is a um, really awesome title. We'll talk about that a little bit later in the show. But Mike, thank you for joining us on Ironweeds. Hey, it's great to be here. Thanks so much for having me. 
So we wanted to go through a couple different things with you, which uh, for the for the listening audience, uh, which is the only audience, uh, because this is a podcast, uh, you know, de- absolutely, definitely stick around to the end for the lightning round, uh, where you, we're just going to go like right down the the line of like dot, lots of different things in addition to what is already covered in an extensive book. Yes, I'm very we nervous fa- about. But this. we found a couple other things <laughs> that might be worth uh, discussing. Yeah, you will be graded. So yeah. uh, I hope you're. I hope you really boned up for this podcast interview. <laughs> this interview could end my career. Yeah, I'm, I'm very excited. <laughs> uh, yeah, we we all had a really great time listening to your audiobook uh, version of this uh, book, which was for us, at least for me. I, I guess should, I should speak for myself. Um, it was like definitely the 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 way to be able to uh, enjoy it because it, you did a great job narrating it. Hey, and, thank you. Uh, and I was able to like you know just mow the lawn, do a bunch of uh, you know like menial tasks around the house, like uh, planting my garden and stuff like that. Uh, and I listened to all of these um, hypotheticals that are actually sometimes incredibly plausible and probably inevitable. And uh, I had a really great time with the book. So thanks again for writing it. My pleasure. I'm 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 glad you liked it. I and and I mean I'm and I'm glad to hear that you were like mowing your lawn and stuff. That is sort of. I don't, I do not have any pretense about listeners, like, you know, sitting in a dark, quiet room and just focusing I'm gonna their one entire up, soul on it. I'm going to one-up Chris and say, I went on a four-mile hike, and uh, oh, cool. and then I made right. a face mask. So, you know, I'm pretty much living my best life out here in, in Coronaville. <laughs> Great. <Hell yeah. laughs> you, you did all of that? You went on a four-mile hike while listening to I? Audiobook? I my, did. My, wow. Okay. It's true. It's true. I'm so honored. Yes. I'm so honored. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. It's a pretty cool th- a thing creating like audio content because all of the um, uh, consumption happens completely outside of your like available uh, observation. So I, I constantly am like running into people like downtown that are like, oh, yo, I really like that episode, blah, blah, blah. And it's a little, it's a little like shocking every time. I'm just like, oh, shit. Like, I mean, I, I look at the stats. So I know that there are people listening to this, but it's a, an interesting thing. Like, uh, how does it feel like putting out an entire like book and audiobook of like your own narration? Uh, it's, it, it's like, um, it's sort of like a dream come true for me it, it, because I have really like psychotically specific dreams. Um, I just, I, I love audiobooks. Um, I was kind of in a way more excited about the audio version of my book than I was about the ink and paper version. Um, I really wanted, I really, I really wanted people having that experience. You know, I like, I remember my first sort of like amazing audio book experience listening to Lolita while I was in the, the Finnish Arctic Circle. And I have all of these like weird associations between walking through these like storybook forests and listening to Jeremy Irons voice in my ear talking about, you know, <laughs> child rape and um sounds lovely and like if yeah if, yeah if you if you were if you were vladimir nabokov you know hearing that i was listening to like you know his masterwork on my janky ipod while walking around finland he'd probably be like horrified that i was doing that to his like to his precious book but like i don't know I don't know. People do worse things to yeah. listening to audiobooks. <laughs> like, like, like turn yeah. the book uh, backwards on the bookshelf so you just see the pages and just you and buy them by the by the meter to just fill up bookshelves. That's that's <laughs> probably the worst thing you can do to a book is just use it as filler for your ugly apartment. <laughs> to, to 
prop it up behind your prop it up behind your desk to display your sort of like uh decorating Educators, skills yeah. to show how smart you are yeah. right yeah like i don't know if you noticed right. but i have infinite jest here yeah yeah Oh, I don't know wow, if you yeah. noticed, but I have a framed uh, quarter of an American flag. I'll hold it up. <laughs> so, I, you know, we, we actually should give a quick description of what this book is that yeah. we're talking about, yeah. right? So, the, the, the format is each chapter is like a four instance or, that starts with like the day blank happens. Right. So, right now I'm looking at, you know, like the day humans become immortal. Right. And, and you just kind of go through what would happen when uh on the last day that uh, or the first day that something happens and usually it opens with some sort of an- like for instance anecdote or, like usually or vignette. A fictional yeah, yeah vignette which i did really like the vignettes and i think that's one of the things that makes the audio book work well is because um a lot of it is written from a kind of like personal perspective and so your delivery is really great but um the vignettes are are a delightful way to begin the chapter. So some of the um, topics you cover, like David said, the day humans become immortal. Um, one of my favorite ones was actually the day antibiotics don't work anymore, which I think was obviously mm-hmm, very relevant mm-hmm. to our current moment. Um, yeah, yeah. That's why I take antibiotics every day. He does, yeah, yeah. So that they always Great. work. Excellent. <laughs> yeah, and just like yeah, just like the CDC recommends. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I I raise massive amount of animals just just to kill like just to put, you feed by antibiotics and, and kill for no other reason <laughs> and then I mean, you don't eat them yeah right no, yeah, just, no that's good yeah you feed them tons of antibiotics and growth hormones and then they just become like these uh crazy inflated ultra like muscular super arnold schwarzenegger animals and then you slaughter them at the end of the process and that's just a good that like it like strengthens our antibiotics makes them work better well some people keep good some time. people keep animals as pets chris actually keeps super bugs as pets um, it's a very niche yeah. hobby, but it is. Yeah, it, that's awesome. Yeah, it is yeah, that's awesome. I mean, some people, yeah, because some people have like tarantulas, right. you know, because they're like, they're like that's that dangerous vibes, you know. Yeah, you want to show people like, this is my MRSA. Yep. It's, yeah. I named it after Carl Sagan. Isn't that cute? <laughs> <laughs> I don't actually do that for the record. Just, you know, uh-huh. don't actually uh, breed super bugs as a hobby, you know, because I'm really secretly a bio. Uh, What's the word? Terrorist? The, uh, bio yeah, bio terrorist. Exactly. <laughs> it's not it's not a hobby. It's a life goal. It's, it's a, a lifestyle. passion. It's a lifestyle. Sure, no, we're all bioterrorists yeah. here. And it's this is a safe space. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Well it's it's funny that just going out and being an asshole is being a bioterrorist potentially in this moment and like with legitimacy and so it's like you see people in viral videos now like uh you know like coughing coughing on (laughs) coughing on people's restaurant tables and it's like hey that's like illegal (laughs) wow you're like literally potentially doing biowarfare right which has like you know uh, there's a geneva convention (laughs) right right right, you're gonna be tried in the hague but yeah i mean um the antibiotic chapter in the book was, you know, when I set out to write about that, um, antibiotics, um, uh, for those of you listening at home, antibiotics uh, work on bacteria, but not viruses. So, you know, don't take penicillin for COVID. Um, but yeah, I, I set out to write about the consequences that the, the terrible consequences that I had heard about of a, um, of an antibiotic free future, which were mainly that like routine surgeries couldn't be done anymore because the courses of antibiotics that we would give people, um, 
uh, things like surgeries. So like a, a lot of, a lot of just general life would change. Um, you, uh, amputations for diabetic people wouldn't be as common. A lot of people would just have to like hope their leg infections went away. Um, and then, um, the other thing would be like, you could, uh, get a splinter and die, you know, people in the, people in, people in the industrialized world are accustomed to, um, easily being able to treat infections. But if you get a splinter and then you get like, um, these like triple, uh, antibiotic resistant superbugs, then, you know, you can just, you could end up going into septic shock and, and dying of septicemia. And that was, and I did write about that, but it was just, it's, it's, it was interesting writing it because the doctors and epidemiologists that I talked to about it were like, Oh, you, you also, you also need to write about an epidemic. You know, that's like, or a pandemic. You need to write, a, you should write about a pandemic because that's going to be one of the things to think about. And, and at the time I was just like, pandemic, huh? Yeah. I played the, played the video game. This is an interesting topic. <laughs> seems a little bit, seems a little bit hysterical. I don't know if I really want to write about a pandemic, pandemic, but you know, they were, they were, very clear on the fact that it was definitely something to think about. So, you know, I guess well, maybe they were right. We'll see. <laughs> yeah, pandemic. I mean, we haven't had one of those in a hundred years. What's the likelihood? Really? Yeah, yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, so like, I guess speaking of things that we don't think are going to happen and then do happen, and then just generally being scared of things that have, uh, that sort of generally might come and get you. Uh, anxiety. <laughs> You're very open about it in the beginning of your book, right? <laughs> that, um, that like, had the, the, the way th this started almost as a kind of s therapy for yourself yeah. to, like, find, uh, grounded, be grounded in, uh, and in anxiety and fears that you have about, you know, what, whatever might, might come and that this was a way to ration, put some sort of rational boundaries around it. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, I think, um, you know, like, I, in in the book, I say I have uh, something common, which is an anxiety disorder. That was because I, I have generalized anxiety disorder, and I wrote that that was common. And my fact checker was like, the medical community does not does not uh, classify generalized anxiety disorder as common. Um, and so I ended up I ended up kind of editing that passage so that I said I have a common condition anxiety because mm. um, I didn't want I didn't want people to be excluded if they don't have generalized diagnosed. anxiety disorder yeah diagnosed generalized anxiety disorder and um and you know what it is for me what anxiety has been over the course of my life for me has just has been all encompassing just an all consuming um way of looking at the world um that is just it it informs everything i everything i do everything i work on every conversation i ever have is is uh under the influence of um, generalized anxiety disorder. And that means that I have, uh, that means everything from panic attacks to nightmares to social anxiety to, uh, you know, just, just the whole thing. It's, and it's, um, I kind of think of it as something that happens in my body that I then, um, I look to circumstances to find reasons after the fact, after I've already become anxious, the anxiety, mm -hmm. the anxiety grips me and then I find reasons mm -hmm. for it. Um, and so, you know, my, my assumption about it, my assumption about readers with anxiety, which is 
not going to work for everybody is that they are the, um, is that they are the knowledge is power type of anxious person. <laughs> and I think a lot of people aren't, you know, my wife is not, and she's more the, um, knowledge only bliss. Yeah. Knowledge only when strictly necessary, um, about the things that, uh, mm. uh, make her worry. And, and, um, and, and that's really understand when you're talking about real diagnosable anxiety, there are, there are perfectly good reasons to not seek this stuff out. So, I mean, I've gotten some feedback like, Hey, <laughs> the book seemed cool. I had to put it down. It was, um, it was sending me into a spiral. Um, and I totally understand. I also have, um, I also have diagnosed generalized anxiety disorder and I am similar to you. I, the only, I don't actually know if it's a healthy practice to engage in, but if I am anxious about something, the only way it's almost like I have exactly one option, which is to learn everything about that thing that I possibly can. Um, and I don't do it because it is necessarily helpful to me. It's just that I really don't have much of a choice in the matter. Um, and I did find the book actually quite comforting in, in, in that respect, because you do give these very, um, you know, specific uh, hypothetical, but very specific discussions on incredibly anxiety inducing topics, but. Um, especially the way in the book you talk about the physical manifestations of anxiety was really striking to me because I think that's something who don't experience, especially generalized anxiety is like how much of it is a bodily, you know, I, like I get the tingling hands and the inability to take a deep, you know, like a satisfying breath, breath which I actually went to a, a doctor about when I was in my early twenties because I was a smoker. And I was worried I was having some kind of breathing problem. And she prescribed me a inhaler for um, early COPD. But the inhaler had the side effect of increasing your heart rate. So I was taking this inhaler when Uh. I was anxious and it was increasing my heart rate. And then I would get more anxious and then I would hit the inhaler again, which actually put me, ended up putting me in the ER because I thought I was having a heart attack, which was actually a panic attack. Anyway, long story short, um, it is a very, can be a very physical manifestation of it. And um, I think that's another, just going back to the audiobook conversation, another reason I really love audiobooks is because it's the kind of thing that can keep my brain busy while I do other things. Because, and you mentioned this also in your book, is that you have to have this constant onslaught of content, content, content. Because if you're alone with your own mind for too long, the quietness seeps in and then... Um, it's not very quiet. So that was really, uh, that really resonated with me a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I, I, um, my, my wife sometimes hears me, I'll be in the shower and I'll suddenly just like start like, um, swearing just because I'm just because I will have that worked up. I'm getting worked up. Yeah. I like, I usually, I'll, I'll, I usually try to, uh, like have her close by actually, or, um, or like, uh, or be listening to something in the shower just because like that amount of time with my own thoughts is really bad for me. And sometimes I worry, you know, I'm, cause I'm listening, I'm, I'm almost always listening to an audiobook or a podcast and, uh, or a, or a language learning program. Um, and, uh, and, and I think it's a really good way to cope it's for me, it's been a really good way. It's, it's, I don't know. It's been the only way that I've been able to enter adulthood and, and deal with my responsibilities has been to, um, to fill my head with audio. Um, because 
of this problem. But I worry sometimes that um, that those moments of quiet have a purpose that and and I and I think I know what it is. Um, like I I think that you process social interactions and and um, and like memorize um, other people's like biographical information and and things like that because I've noticed that I've noticed something that I've lost ever since I used ever since I started using audio as a coping a coping mechanism like this is that I um, forget interactions mm. with other people like I have I actually have like big lapses of memory that I think might be caused by just filling my just filling all of my mental downtime with you know, other people's voices and not allowing my own in. So, um, you know, it's a, yeah. it's not a perfect solution. Anxiety can also <laughs> really, um, contribute to memory problems. I have a, I have really a very difficult time with memory, um, memorizing specific things, but also remembering kind of the generalities of conversations I have with people. And a lot of it is anxiety because you have so much more constant input, cognitive input than the average, like mentally healthy person, because you have this kind of never ending onslaught of concerns and fears and being on guard. And, uh, it took, it took David a really long time getting used to living with me, um, as partners, because if he, he can't sneak up on me and, when normal people think of sneaking up on, you think of coming up behind somebody and saying, boo. No, for me, sneaking up is like entering a room too quietly and then saying something like that's, you know, so yeah. So it's, um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's interesting. Yeah. I wonder, I, I, I go around with big, big cans, big headphone, uh, like noise canceling headphones on my head. And, um, like, I, I don't know if, I don't know which came first, the desire to have big headphones on or, uh, or, you know, or to put it another way, like, I like that. I like something hugging my head and keeping sounds out. I've been mm. doing it forever. Before noise canceling headphones were common, I used to wear just big, gnarly headphones. You know, uh, 20 years ago, I got big, gnarly, um, headphones to just, just for the, just for the kind of um, security blanket effect of having something giant on my head. So my wife can't really sneak up on me very, or she can't do what you're talking about um, uh, very easily because like, I just won't hear her walking around the house. I just, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm gone. I'm, I'm, so, I'm in another so you're world. So you're me. always being snuck up on. Uh, in a sense. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, in a way, yeah, I'm being startled thousands and thousands of times. <laughs> the headphones thing is so yeah. interesting. There was this Everything time in my me. life when I was walking back and forth to work, and I was a bartender, and it was about a 20-minute walk from the apartment we were living in to my place of work. And sometimes I would be coming home, not like super late, but, you know, after after a night shift, and I couldn't wear headphones because I didn't feel safe walking home by myself, you know, I'm a fairly small woman. And mm -hmm. it was this, um, like interesting technological problem because I had to have the audio, right. Otherwise the scary quiet sinks in. So you got to have something to distract me for myself, mm -hmm. but I couldn't have right. both ears sure. covered because then the scary person sneaks up. So I had to like, end up, I would have earbuds and I had one in one ear and that was the technological uh, balance that I struck between those two needs for survival. Yeah. I've, 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 I've I, fortunately um, going around as a, as a six foot one man. Um, I, I, I think I've been comfortable in places for the most part um, wearing headphones, but yeah, I mean, there, there, there are times when I have to, um, there are times when I'm like, um, like 
reporting, you know, doing, doing some kind of research or something like that someplace, uh, someplace like someplace iffy, someplace I'm not quite comfortable. And, um, and then I do have to kind of make the very conscious decision. Like I am now going to take my headphones off and, and have to have a full sensory experience of the, of the place that I'm in. I have to psych myself up, stop somewhere, have, have a big drink of water, breathe, and then I can go out and be where I am fully, you know, with like the, the sounds of a, the sounds of a, of an unfamiliar city or something like that. But it's a big deal when I do it. It's interesting that you guys are talking about um, ways to get, um, or uh, it's interesting to, to talk about like how do you uh, uh, deal with anxiety uh, on a day to day basis um, and the habits that you form to sort of help yourself get through. Because I saw a little bit about of that sort of in the book throughout, where um, you know in the beginning of every chapter you have like a series of questions or like little uh, little fact sheet. At the, be- at the beginning, and one of the last questions is like, is it worth changing habits? And I, I thought that was interesting, both a way of, fr- like, the, the, that specific phrase, I think, is interesting because the problems that you're looking at are actually very structural, right? So individual people's habits can't change, and it doesn't really seem to be that the kind of habit you're talking about. Like individual person, uh, individual people changing the yeah. way that they live. So, you want to talk more about like what you mean by uh, worth changing habits? I know it's such a weird, like specific thing to focus on in the book, but it's all I thought of. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, I do not mean I. What I mean, what I what I'm trying to do by using that extremely vague phrasing is um, is kind of leave it up to you. Um, you know, the the book kind of avoids being prescriptive um, because I was publishing it with Scribner. I mean, look at what, look at what they publish, you know, they're not like, they're not a leftist publishing house. And um, right now they have a, they have have a book that has just come out. That's like uh, the Glenn Kessler, like uh, Fort Pinocchio's guide to Trump or whatever. Um, So that's, that's like their latest, that's their latest, uh, Contrib- uh, contribution to politics, the discourse you know, to the discourse. Yeah. Um, so, you know, my prescription for, um, my prescription for the day that the last fish in the ocean dies, it, you know, is, is it worth changing habits over God? Yes, it is worth changing habits over. And when I say it's worth changing habits, I mean, it's worth, um, it, it, it's it's from my perspective, not it's not necessarily in the book, but from my perspective, it's worth um, interfering with the fishing industry. It's worth um, it's worth it's worth uh, uh, <laughs> it's worth some things that I'm not necessarily um, you know uh, I'm a member of the DSA. Uh, they probably have specific, <laughs> they probably have specific things that they're comfortable with prescribing, you know, uh, that, that, that I, that I, you know, um, uh, would yeah. be afraid to like, so uh, like a parody satire are, you know? sense, um, you know, like maybe go you know, find I, your local fishing boat. Yeah. Par- parody. <laughs> right. Like, wouldn't parody, it be funny pa- if this is parody, but like, 
property damage is probably cool. Like property, yeah. there are circumstances where property damage is like good <laughs> uh, parody. Um, you know, vi- well, violence it's against any comedy. person yeah. is always bad, but but violence, right? Yeah, you know, um, <laughs> and that's what I mean by that's what I mean when I say yeah. it's worth it's worth changing habits. You know, if if people are like, oh yeah, I should stop eating the tuna that comes from cans because that has dolphins in it. You know, that's not an adequate. That's <laughs> that's pretty far from an adequate response to uh to the problem. But um, you know, it it's not it's not a solutions book. It's really kind of a um when I say something is worth changing habits, I kind of uh I kind of mean it in in most circumstances as um as comedy by understatement, you know. Uh Yeah. <laughs> it's like uh a lot of these things are are so obviously perverse and so fundamentally in need of such enormous social change that for me to say like um somebody should do something <laughs> um, <laughs> is I don't know I, of, I'm not going to change my buying habits just because nuclear weapons might kill everybody right. like, I'm going to keep buying nuclear weapons at Sam's Club right, what if I go down to like Two chickens a week for consumption. <laughs> yeah. Is that enough? Still, still going to buy some nuclear <laughs> I mean, weapons. You know, yeah. Uh, so, so when I, um, when I was prescribed, when I was like, you know, kind of offering solutions um, in the book, they are kind of uh, like, they are kind of like, um, I know you're not going to do it just because I say so sort of things. You know, like like the the chapter on the chapter. There's a lot of uh, factory farming stuff in the chapter on the day the last slaughterhouse closes, and 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 my perspective is like, you know, I'm not Jonathan Savron Foer. I'm not the guy who's gonna like tell you to stop eating factory farmed meat or whatever. You know, I I know I I know that within the scope of the day it finally happens. You don't give a shit. You're not gonna you're not gonna make that decision just because I say so. But I am gonna tell you <laughs> that. The system is very fucked up, and uh, if you want to think about what you're doing, you know, maybe, uh, you know, eh, mull it over. Uh, find somebody else's book and read their perspective, and, you know, maybe that'll tell you what to do about your, like, habits. I don't know what those, I don't know, I don't know what those might be. Um, so, yeah, I'm not, I think because I am, I, it's like, it's like when it comes to, like, um, things like liberal guilt and, like, telling people what to do. Um, I think those are some of the worst conversations that I ever have in my life. I think I'm like, I'm like terrible at, uh, at trying to persuade people to like, like do, yeah, do the right thing or whatever, you know, like, um, I think like when it comes to like, you know, COVID shaming, um, I, I just, I opt out. I oh, don't, yeah, yeah. I, I don't do it. I don't do the COVID shaming, like, social media posts or anything like that. The only place I find myself doing it is within my immediate family. Same. Yeah. And, and like, and then, and then, and then I have those, like, sweaty, red-faced, like, grabbing my hair and conver- conversations with them. And when it's over, I feel totally ashamed. And it's just like, you know, I, I cannot let this kind of, like, sanctimony uh, into my professional life because I'll just become some kind of like joke. So, um, those kinds of things, people, especially people's consumer habits, like my, 
my professional opinion on your consumer habits is I don't give a shit. Like, do whatever you want. <laughs> <laughs> as, as has been said often and factually, there is no ethical consumption under capitalism. But yeah. Um, and I like that part of the sure, book as well, right. that you don't have these kind of... I like that it wasn't prescriptive because that's just, I think, one outside of the, the scope of the book. But also, like, we live in such an incredibly complex age that it's very difficult to be prescriptive in a way that's useful on broad topics like that. Um, I think that's a real problem that's facing the left right now is that we're having a very difficult time determining what kind of material changes are within our grasp and exactly what tactics to go about to enact that change. Um, yeah, and it's it, really, it seems like a time for reflection. It seems like a time for building priorities and like, what are the biggest problems that we face and what are, you know, like small concrete steps we can take to tackling them. Because even in like in a, in a massively unequal society, it's like by definition, you can't give one answer to a problem, right? Because you have so many people that it, they are part of the problem or they are part of the solution or they are the target of uh, of the problem or or, uh, uh, or or whatever, right? So you can't say one thing to everybody because uh, this the society impacts them so completely and treats them so completely differently. Yeah, I mean, all those articles, like when you read, when you read an article from like the New York Times or whatever, that's like, uh, 10 little things you can do to help out with climate change. It's always just, it's always like 10 little things that like, you know, uh, barely disrupt your yeah. lifestyle. Do you need your is, fourth you know, car? Completely like diametrically yeah, opposed. Exactly. They're all written for like lawyers who like live in Connecticut and commute to Manhattan and like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But the irony is also that, like, the average working person, you know, is also the real end consumer of the, th the processes and things and chemicals. And, like, you know, the whole quote is, like, you know, like, I don't have to worry about my consumer habits because, um, you know, the, the, the top uh, richest uh, 120 uh, corporations actually account for 80% of emissions and environmental des yeah. degradation. And while, like... That's a, a, one correct way of looking at that math, you know? And the other aspect is like, well, what do those corporations do with all of that stuff? It's like, oh, like build buildings, like, you know, make uh, commodities, uh, you know, like fly jets, uh, you know, like charter cruises, you know, like build missiles, like blow up people, like just, you know, go all on, on and on and on. And like, at the end of the day, it's like, it really is uh, what people are doing. Like <laughs> that actually causes yeah. all of the fucked up destruction right. and everything else. Like whether it's, you know, buying uh, a shirt from target that was made in like a sweatshop in Malaysia or whatever. It's like, you know, like th there, there is this culpability, but it's also just like totally a uh, completely irrational, like strategy to try to like guilt people that are in a way of life and a whole society and structural, like, oppressions of their own you know like the whole like malice thing about how the uh the united states is like the over rich overlord of like all the rest of the world is like true and it's also true that like 70 percent of the uh the the children in the the country are w growing up in what we understand as, as poverty conditions yeah. and like and so those two things are hard to gel together in a uh given work and like you know like a, so I think that you you did a good job by making the um, 
the the, the like the, the stories that you have really appealing to a very broad audience and really just thought provoking yeah. in general. So, thank, you know, I mean, I appreciate you. that. And, and, and like, I am, I like at the end of the day, I just really like books by like, you know, Mary Roach. I really like, um, pop science books, you know, in my, in my weaker moments, I think that XKCD comics are funny. <laughs> um, don't tell anyone. Uh, I really, I read Mary and, Roach's, Mary Roach's spooked is very good. Um, yeah, that's a, that's a great one. Um, that, that, the, the one, uh, I like the one about, I like the one that's just about digest, that's just about the digestive system, uh, gulp. Um, it's, it's about like, it's about food and pooping and all of those things. And, um, you know, I'm, I have very, very, uh, I have very, very basic taste in my, in my reading habits. When it comes to, when it comes to the books that I come back to cover to cover, like, um, you know, Mary Roach, Bill Bryson, uh, like I'm not a, I, I, I do not, I do not sit and read like radical indoctrination books. I read, I read like nerd, uh, Reddit epic bacon books a lot. <laughs> yeah. And, Nice. Uh, and, and like, um, and, and I like that stuff and, uh, and, and, and I, you know, I, I can't, I, for some reason I, I'm, I'll never be part of that club. I think because like, there's a, there's a, there comes a point at which I, um, get very frustrated with those specific people, um, and, and the insularity of their, um, content worlds and their um um their methods of their their uh fascination with consuming and the and the way that the the way that the geek world um it keeps pushing the same button wanting the same like that i keep pushing the button and i want another of the same thing uh, again and again and again um i get it but uh, it, I just, I get really annoyed at a certain point and then I want to do tweets about how I hate Marvel movies and it's like, oh no, now I'll do, now I'm going to say something unpopular about, and it's going to offend the people who enjoy the kind of thing that I write. Um, so, uh, you know, I just wanted to write something that would, uh, hopefully appeal to the sensibilities of people who, uh, buy books like that. And, um, I don't know if I, I don't know if it worked. <laughs> Um, but like, yeah, I wasn't trying to, I really genuinely wasn't trying to write something to like blow their minds or, or anything like that. I really thought like, um, like the college kid that I was, the, the like 18 year old book buyer that I was would have really liked this book and, uh, and really didn't go. I think it's such a great perspective to go in writing a book on because like so many people want to like have the book that is like capital or something again you know, yeah 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 yeah, yeah. Own, like, no, owns everybody the, else like the book that changes the most minds is the one that like is like the first one that like opens you up to a whole wide range of other things and then you can go be an insufferable dork about like very specific things but the one book that gets you down that path is probably the more important one and Pithy it's not pamphlets always the, have changed yeah. a lot more history than yeah. um voluminous <laughs> tomes of theory right yeah, yeah. And, and like yeah. i and and I, I would say that there were, there were parts that where you you uh talked about things in a way that i haven't seen in more, the more like professional oriented literature like like the one on self-driving cars and like the the last car to run off the assembly line that has a steering wheel i forgot the exact title of, well, the, of the chapter yeah. um 
uh, I really liked that one. That's part of the, the towards the research that I do, where um, I, I I see too few people talk about like what you said about how what will end up happening is you get these cities with streets in them where um, no one is allowed to drive or get or like play in the street or do anything for safety reasons for the car. Right. They're like, well, you know, the, you know, because driving a car is complicated and getting a machine to do it is hard also. So for your safety, we're going to start closing off these roads. And that seems like a really crucial first step to a lot of really scary stuff is if you're saying like these roads need to be completely shut down, then you can then you start doing all these other things to like say, well, you know, you might live right next door to a grocery store, but you're not authorized to get there. Because you have to get in a in right. a in a car first, and you're banned from that service, you know. And then all of a sudden, it's impossible to get to things that are physically close to you. Yeah, yeah. I mean the the um, the guy that I interviewed most for that uh, chapter, this guy Vivek Wadwa, he's um, he's you know he's a venture capitalist, and like I found myself talking to a lot of venture capitalists and libertarians and people like that, CEOs. Um, because they're, because these, because they think about this stuff, they, they've, they're the ones trying to bring about these eventualities. Um, and so, and so it's like, you know, well, you know, kind of tell me about this world that you're, that you're imagining. And, you know, I've got this guy, he's, he's from India, Vivek Wadwa, and he's telling me about, about how India is going to be when there's nothing but self-driving cars and how great it's going to be. And I was, and I just been in India right before I had that conversation and you know, it's full of um, it's the, the, the most incredibly vibrant street culture anywhere, th- like absolutely anywhere is in India where the street, where anything goes in the street, the street is absolutely public property. You do with it, whatever you need to do, whether it's like selling fruit right in the middle of the street, or bringing through, bringing an elephant through like a residential area or, you know, just like, a pig just having babies just right there in the middle of the street. Like it is a, it is an absolute free for all. And if you can't, if you can't like drive cars up those streets and if you can't like, um, like if it's all, if it's, if it's, if it becomes mechanized, then like, then an Indian city, if I don't know if you've ever been to India, but like the concept of a city is just so fundamentally altered by that. Because it's not because like just this sort of like go from your house to uh, your supermarket to Buffalo Wild Wings destination based way of traveling is just it's it is impossible there. You can't think of it that way. Um, And so like so I just kind of did my best to describe the future as as he was imagining it. And um and it sounds, I mean, to me, it sounded horrifying. <laughs> just right, just yeah, yeah. as he described it, just what he was saying sounded horrifying. I didn't have to say this is horrifying in the book. It just, you know, it emerged organically from having conversations. Yeah. I and mean, what you're describing is also how in the United States, we ordered streets for the, the first kind of car. Yeah. Right. It was like the, the American streets were, you know, yeah, 
you know, pigs uh, 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 having babies. And I don't know, there probably weren't any elephants, you know, but it was just like people walking all over the place in the in the uh, in the street. And the car was just something that was that was like the only thing that could go faster than five miles an hour. And it was just full. It was just like rich kids killing like yeah. children. He's like they were driving yeah, lots of people down the center of the and street. People were outraged. Yeah. Like, really, really outraged. Yeah. Yeah. And so and so the the export of the of the car of the self-driving car is really an exporting of like an entire way of life and economy. It, and we've conceded so much of social yeah. life to the car that in the beginning was very disruptive yeah. and very you know opposed popularly and now it's just and now David and I were talking about this a few days ago that like now car deaths are used to excuse all other kinds of new disruptive so you know well more people die in cars than are dying of covid and it, so like it becomes the new well we accepted car deaths so we should just have to accept other deaths you know <laughs> Um, and that's a really dangerous, destructive pattern. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's weird. Like the, the, we should accept, um, all of these deaths is very, uh, I, I, I like it's, it, it is interesting. I think a narco capitalism would kind of get you there, but like, I think it, it has to be the kind of like Tyler Durden, uh, like, um, post-apocalyptic anarcho capitalism, uh, where, where it's just like, well, no, because we're doing away with modernity and society. And we're going back to, we're going back to hunting with bows and arrows. So, I mean, you can't really think in terms of there being a virus out there because if you're strong, you know, you'll survive the virus. Like, what are you, what are you talking about? We're not, this is all, (laughs) this is all over. So I like, I get, so there are some people where it's like, oh, I get it. I get it. You're going to, you're going to hunt all your own food now. It's Batman in the woods. Yeah. Right. Uh, so, so there, there's a certain kind of perspective, like, like there are logic, there are people who have a, who have a, who have intellectual consistency about their sort of like apathy toward COVID. And it's like, well, hats off to you for, for, uh, you know, not having, not having like, um, stores and electricity anymore. Like I, I get it. I get it. Yeah. That's, it sounds Ted, cool. Ted Kaczynski doing that. <laughs> yeah. <All right>. <laughs> <laughs> so wh- another chapter that I really loved in the book, um, was the day the last fish in the ocean dies. Um, And I've always kind of thought about the idea of a dead ocean as like not even really worth pondering because the time we get to, by the time we get to that point, like once all the phytoplankton dies off. um, We're also dead. We're also dead. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But but the way you talk about it was really interesting to me and particularly um, just like how much of the world's population actually relies on fishing was something I think uh, that especially a lot of people in the Western world maybe aren't forced to confront a lot. Because we have conquered the cow. <laughs> <laughs> Solved hunger through the cow, yeah. Uh. Um, yeah, uh, like, I think right now uh, there's a kind of fishing renaissance happening in uh, North Korea where they are um, now kind of for the first time approaching um food independence or not food independence not even nearly but um um the ability to kind of provide for their own needs because they have ramped up their sort of like um it's a it's a kind of like military process for uh you know national scale fishing so they're able to bring in so many calories just by um scouring the surrounding ocean that they're kind of for the first time able to feed their people so they're uh, they're, they're devastating the surrounding ecosystems. Um, they're using 
they're using thousands of diesel ships to go um and and accomplish this but they're also like finally for the first time um uh you know relatively safe from starvation uh so it's like it, it's 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 tough it's tough to kind of like uh it, again hard to find a, a prescription for what the what the moral thing is for the international community you know because like from the 1970s until now we we wiped out um 40 percent of the vertebrate biomass from the ocean something like 40 it might be 42 percent um probably more you know by the day oh yeah absolutely more by the day we're we are i mean when you think about that amount of loss of life in the oceans just like all vertebrates um down by 40 percent over the course of um 40 40 odd years um all, so almost cut in half over the course of 40 odd years and and accelerating um we are where we are really working hard on you know not having vertebrate life in the oceans anymore um and uh like talking about sustainable fishing is like a grim joke at this point. Um, it's, mm. it's so, it's so depressing. Um, I, I mean, the, the, the actual stats on, on what we're doing to the fisheries are, are in the book. I didn't, I, I should have met, I, I, when I watch like Chris Hedges or Noam Chomsky, they're always so good at just like, just like rattling, rattling off, off the numbers. I hate that. Yeah. It drives yeah. me crazy. Yeah. Yeah, and go fuck <laughs> Uh, well, well, you know that that's why they get paid. I mean, Bernie Sanders is good at it too. Yeah. Yeah. that's why they're that's why they're all so rich. Yeah, that's why Bernie Sanders. <laughs> they memorize numbers. Um, yeah, uh, I'm not one of those guys. Uh, 2015 report by the World Wildlife Fund: the oceans lost 49 percent of all vertebrates in the time between 1970 and 2012. There, that's there's your stat. Um, uh, so, uh, you know, we are. Um, Killing all fish uh, as fast as we can, and I and I also talk about things like turtles and whales um, in the chapter. Um, it's, all right, yeah, you talk about like how like what was it um, uh, some of the first uh, uh, genocidal maniacs that came to North America? Would like you get like Spanish turtles? Conquistadors yeah, is referring yeah. to. <laughs> you know, like turtles. You're wondering which which brand yeah. of uh, genocidal maniac? <laughs> right, but there were like so many turtles that it like kept them up at night because they were just like bumping against, against the, the, the whole boat. Of the sh- ship yeah, out. man. Yeah, don't have, and don't have yeah. that problem. I also uh, solved. There, there used to be so many passenger pigeons that they would black out the night sky when like a roosting amount of them like leapt off of the the recent uh, trees because they were uh, like scared. And like now they're extinct. So, I mean, the, the, um, the biologists that I talked to, um, were talking about all of these, all of these phenomena, you know, like, um, the like giant herds of buffalo. Uh, We've all heard this a million times. There's this book, there's this book by, uh, John Mualam, uh, called, I think, Wild. And it's about like, um, the sort of like human relationship with animals. Um, and, 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 and it's great to kind of read about like what, particularly in America, to kind of read, like what, um, what, where we started <laughs> compared to where we are now, uh, kind of tells us a lot about this concept. Um, it, it, it stop me if it's too cliche to even talk about it, but, uh, of shifting baselines. Um, oh no, I think that was a really well pointed out, uh, element within your book. And I'd love for you to, yeah. So, I mean, when we, when we talk about, uh, our effect that we have on the natural world, 
Um, what we have a hard time doing is um, explaining the, the scope of the damage that we're doing because we, uh, we're, we're inhibited from um, giving anybody a sense of like what it's quote unquote supposed to be. Uh, problem being, our baseline for what's normal is where is wherever we are standing in the present. And where we are standing in the present is extremely uh, degraded, just to the point where arguably um, a lot of uh, a lot of oceanographers that I talked to for the book were like a dead ocean. Well, it would look like like uh, kind of like what we have now, just like five percent worse. You know, um, like we're 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 already since we're already just about there. You know, you just have to kind of like look at what we have and, and imagine something slightly worse. And and um, you know, they they kept saying like yeah, you know, the better way to describe it would be. To bring somebody, if you could time, if you could have somebody time travel from the past and show them the ocean now, then they would say that the day that the last fish in the ocean died is like already here. Um, you know, they were they were so accustomed to an ocean just full of of life, an ocean teeming with life that um, that it's it's sort of it's sort of something that we can't we already can't imagine, um, and so. Uh, you know, what, whatever your perspective is on what the natural world, you know, quote unquote, should be, um, it's 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 warped. Unless you're a time traveler, it's it's warped. So there's there's kind of no good way to to to, to describe that. So you're what you're saying is is that there could have been mermaids. Yeah, there were mermaids. Uh, <laughs> there um, there were uh, there were Loch Ness monsters. And uh, sea serpents. There were serpents, and um, uh, Columbus ate them uh, right before doing a genocide. On the bright that side, hopefully is. we got rid of Cthulhu, though. So yeah. you know, at least there's that. There were Cthulhus. Yeah, that they were is delicious. No, no, yeah. no, actually, uh, octopi, uh, octopuses are doing really well under climate change. I remember reading that that they're like one yeah, of the few. They're well suited to species. the temperature increase. I yeah, is what I was. Plus, they're really smart, so they can take advantage of any situation. But they can't pass down their knowledge to their children, so. There are giant schools of squids now, um, and a lot of people who think that um, we should be, uh, you know, getting all of our protein from squids instead of fish. Um, oh, really? Yeah. What about uh, jellyfish? Are they protein rich? Jellyfish are jellyfish are edible. I think they're like, I think they're mostly made of some kind of like, um, you know, fibrous, only semi-digestible uh, stuff. But like, apparently, there there are people who um, there are advocates for like eating jellyfish because yeah, there are so many jellyfish. But, but like, but you were um, ta talking about squids. Like, w uh, when these people say we should all be eating squid, are they being facetious, or are they saying like we literally could, like, ecologically speaking? There, I think they're saying that that's what we'll be stuck with. Mm. Um, mm. Because, uh, you know, well, that, that's, what, that's what we'll be stuck with because, like, it, you know, if we have to pull protein from the ocean, then, like, the, then the, the only way to do it is going to be to transition. I mean, as a side effect, you end up with, uh, you, you, maybe you can preserve, if you can get people to switch over to eating calamari instead of tuna fish sandwiches, then maybe you, um, like, maybe you end up with a preserved tuna habitat. Or something like that, but I don't think anybody has a master plan for how this is supposed to work. I think there are just people observing, like, oh, there are extremely sustainable 
squid fisheries. It's just that we have not, uh, like successfully marketed squid in such a way that, the, you know, what's so frustrating about all of this is like reading about all of these fish. It's like there are, there are species that are plentiful and there are species that are dying and are that are, that are rapidly going extinct. And, um, and like there are no, there, the biologists don't write restaurant menus. And so we, don't we we don't successfully communicate the um the kind of like biological reality of what you're doing when you eat anything that comes from the ocean because like we want fish to be as um as simple to describe from a culinary perspective as things like th things that are domestic animals like pigs and stuff like that and it just doesn't work that way uh you know you're eating you're eating any number, like if you're served ahi tuna, you're being served any number of species. And oh, you're no, talking about fish fraud, my favorite fraud. It's not even necessarily fraud. A lot of it is. A lot of it is out in the open, and you know, it's just not. It's it's just not addressed. It's a marketing it's just, category. It's so yeah, yeah, mm. exactly. We market certain things as as like ahi tuna, and they're <laughs> they are they are like any of any. Of the following species are ahi tuna or Chilean sea bass or something yeah, like yeah. that, and um and the, and these are marketing categories and you know and there are people saying like oh you know the Chilean sea bass is no longer endangered <laughs> and it's like well that's not true you just switched to a different species and now you're you just call that Chilean sea bass and now we're gonna make that yeah. endangered um we're we are we are all uh not in any way reckoning with how we're supposed to deal with our you know with our rapidly <laughs> diminishing fisheries we're like doing this extremely superficial thing where we just kind of like jump from species to species and market new ones and and describe certain practices as sustainable but it's like it it's like saying that certain kinds of co2 emissions are sustainable and others are bad um it's it's all contributing to the same problem which is just which is just hoisting the biomass out of the ocean and putting it into our stomachs and then pooping it back into the ocean in a form that doesn't uh you know procreate <laughs> um so uh uh yeah i mean it's 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 just absolutely as bad it's as it's it's as bad as it gets <laughs> and 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 um and we don't want to do anything about it because we don't want to change our habits um so you know I, I so it's it's one of the more depressing chapters in the book because like yeah i, I have no yeah. solution yeah. i found it to be the most depressing chapter in yeah. the book <laughs> by by far yeah. yeah but it's almost like i felt like it didn't go far enough to like you know Really, like the, the 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 part that made me the most depressed about it was like I was listening to it and I was like, it's going to be so much worse. Like, there's nobody going to be, you know, like I mean, apologies ahead of time if I offend you, but like I, I nobody's going to be surfing in a blood red ocean with like in you know incapable air to like breathe, or if they are, they're going to be like. You know, like you were talking about, like, the, 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 the suit that protects you from the acidity and the, the fucked up, yeah. like, chemicals that we've just gone in. Uh, it's more like we're just going to, like, cease to have a civilization that can produce a suit that would be capable of that. I don't you know? know, man. And I, so, like, like, I kind of think, like, 
I kind of think we'll we'll just keep like we we don't did civilization already end and we're just like uh in our That's in our suits profound you know? point. um <laughs> yeah, yeah. For, like real. like we just kind of keep going on we just kind of keep posting on social yeah. media and making podcasts while uh yeah. while this shit burns you know it's true it's true but at least we're talking about it but i wanted to, to touch on one point that i completely agreed with which is that the shifting baseline would get it to the point where once the oceans are collectively recognized as quote unquote fucked, like, you know, like, you know uh, or, or, or foobar fucked up yeah. beyond all recognition slash repair, uh, that we would just go buck wild, yeah. which is to say if we could. And so whenever I get into like this anxiety induced frame of mind, thinking about, you know, our societal collapse and everything else, um, you know, I don't have diagnosed anxiety disorder, but I still have like an overactive lingual section in my brain that when I'm not listening to anything does get into these dark corners and questions and stuff. And um, I think about how it's almost like the, the comfort I take is that it will never get to the point of like, you know, life as you were saying, you know, uh, will adapt like uh, of, of dying off completely more like our civilization will just stop. You know, like I really, I really think that like we are in a position where we're very uh, top heavy and precarious and required to have so many things working in simultaneous nature to like, keep the just-in-time manufacturing and like all like the nuts and bolts of like our global industrial civilization that you know keeps us all podcasting and watching Netflix like and drinking nice beer like if we can afford it like even during a pandemic you know it's like I feel like that's very fragile and if we, something like you know the the end of uh, fish in the oceans happened it would probably be connected to, you know, a widespread drop in the atmospheric's uh, uh, O2 level or, like, you know, some type of other ecological devastation that, like, we're not going to be able to get away from. And so, I, I don't know. Like, that's, I guess, where I take my uh, greatest sense of solace is that, like, ultimately, like, you know, this will, this will go away. And the things that we're doing that are totally fucked up will also go away. And I think you touch on that a little bit in the sort of existentialist uh, angle in the epilogue, which was probably my favorite chapter. Hey, um, yeah, I think it was it was well deserved, and I wasn't personally like too freaked out by your book because like I think about this like all the time, <laughs> and and sort of the, the nightmares in we my mind. We kind of made uh, a podcast mind. about it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> the nightmares in my he mind. He was so concerned. Uh, he was like, "Hey, Brittany and David, if you want to get together once a week and talk about this shit?" <laughs> yeah. But just reality, just, just talking about reality. And I really appreciate the, the way you went about it. So we're going to pose uh, some, some days to you and we'll ask for your, uh, just off the top of your head, doesn't have to be, you don't have to be accurate. We won't hold you to it. Okay. Um, likely in this century, plausibility rating, scary and worth changing habits. Okay. So for listeners, these are the these are the um, metrics posed at the beginning of each chapter for a given uh, hypothetical day. So we'll start with the day we elect a socialist president. <laughs> uh, okay, uh, likely in this century, I'm going to just put like um, I'm going to put something something along the lines of like uh, I. I doubt it, but I choose to be optimistic or something like that. Like, uh, yeah, I'm not, I'm not ruling it out, 
And uh, I hope you don't either. Or so, I don't know. Uh, plausibility. You can have it if you want it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> what do they say about Warren when you're right, yeah, it's over if electable you if you yeah. fucking yeah. vote for it? Uh, (laughs) uh, what i say about the green party right yeah (laughs) been voting green for like uh four election cycles um so uh plausibility rating of the day we elect socialist influenced by circumstances two out of five um (laughs) scary 20 out of five scary oh i want to have like i put a lot of contrarian answers in the book for whether or not something is scary you do kind of it is kind of scary having a socialist president because like now now you've got uh the open carry people just like shitting themselves and doing something weird i don't even know what it would be um so yeah i'd be scared of like of of some of that freak out reactionary Um, backlash yeah and, and, and also, like, being proved wrong about stuff, that's scary. <laughs> yeah, being no, disappointed, yeah, being, being let disappointed. down, that's scary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, and is it worth changing habits? Uh, yeah, sure. It's, is, is it worth changing habits? I, what I mean is, like, is it worth changing habits in light of the fact that it might happen? Is generally what I mean by this question. Um, and so I'm going to say, yeah, I'm going to say, like, um, you know, uh, uh, work toward it. You know, that would be yeah. my, not that I'm, not that I am prescriptive, not that I'm prescriptive in the book, but like, um, is it worth steering things so that they head in that way? Absolutely. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Okay. Number two, the day we discover we're living in a simulation. <laughs> okay. Uh, <laughs> yeah, this one's tough. So when I write these chapters, um, it's like, it's like, uh, especially one like this, um, I kind of want to just like. Le- like kind of leave the commentary up to the people who do the most research on it and so i would definitely find like if i could get commentary from elon musk like that would be ideal um you know and just just find just find the people who want to talk about it and see what they say and then um and then i would kind of do these ratings based on that but my guess is that the day it's revealed that we're living in the simple in a in a simulation, I would, um, I would say likely in this century, absolutely not. And a plausibility rating, like one out of five, just, I'd be, I'd be forced to like concede, uh, that scary, uh, yes. And then, um, worth changing habits. I don't know. I, yeah, I guess so. I guess it would be, um, I guess you would, uh, no, I think I would just say no. I think it would be, I think it, if I was writing a chapter like this, I think it would be a really simple info box where I would just say, like, it's uh, it's so doubtful that we would be able to figure that out if it were true, that, like, it's not that, it, that it's sort of not worth thinking about. But that's the thing. Like, the thing about it, the thing about a chapter like this is that um, I would really be kind of writing about a different discovery, like a discovery, um, something where I could something where, like, um, something was discovered that changed everything and then i would and so i would use this sort of relatively impossible thing to kind of like write about a similar thing that actually did happen you know so mm-hmm. that like that that would be my that would be that would be my sort of way in because like are you gonna wait are you gonna ask me about zombies no no okay. no, <laughs> no this, ask- the, ne- the last one is much more practical than zombies okay all right let's go let's do the next one Okay. Uh, the day we find out that birds aren't real. <laughs> huh. 
Dave and Upper Zombie. <laughs> so this is this is like a, a this is my like nerdy memer reference, which is that you know birds obviously in the 1980s were replaced by uh, mechanical like surveillance devices. So right, um, there Where hasn't been I a real bird since I think 1984. Is it, did you come up with this, or is this somebody else's no. conspiracy? No, this is just a Reddit thing. Yeah, okay, yeah, I vaguely think I've seen it a little bit on Reddit. Um, yeah, that's fun. Uh, let's see. <laughs> likely in this century, likely in this century, I would just end up putting no plausibility rating. Depends on what the research said. I would be, I would like, I, I love to put, I love to like inflate the plausibility of things that don't seem plausible if I can possibly justify it. Um, so, so I, definitely if yeah. I, yeah, if I could, like if I could find any way to possibly justify it, I would love to put like three out of five or something like that, but I don't know if I could, um, scary, uh, yeah, this would be another one where it's like, since I'm writing something kind of fantastical, it would be cool to be like, no, it would be fine. It'd be great. Um, <laughs> uh, and then worth changing habits. I mean, I don't, I don't know what it would be. I don't know what the research would, I don't know where the research would lead me. It would um, be but, to kill all birds because they're watching us. Or, so. le- or at least stop being naked around birds. Mm. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, you're right. Or, you're right. Le- or maybe just be really nice to them. Oh, yeah. Like in the, in the case that they they were uh, really effective at uh, surveillance and your behavior uh, toward them uh, resulted in some type of uh, favorable outcome know. for a future if, self. If <laughs> birds are narcs, we got to... Yeah. We gotta get that out of here. Really, Make sure really you're filing good. your taxes in front of your bird feeder. <laughs> well, it, it, it's it's sort of like the whole AI uh, religion thing that we clowned on in a previous episode. The idea that like there are people like there's this guy who's like Silicon Valley like nitwit who is trying to come up with a uh, religion around worshiping an AI godhead and then trying to fund the creation of that AI godhead which they believe will uh, judge us on whether or not we want it to exist. And reward us accordingly. Oh, yeah. And there's a whole bunch of. Right. Yeah. I I forget the paradox or some like weird, you know, online conversation that became like uh, quoted by a bunch of, uh, you know, neckbeards like myself. Yeah. No, Um, it's an interesting paradox where like if this AI is ever going to exist and it's going to retroactively judge anybody who didn't work toward its creation, then you then as soon as you hear about it, then it's sort of like. Um, it's sort of like a brain virus that forces you to do everything you can to bring it into existence or, or you already understand that from now on, yeah, all you, of your actions will be judged as, uh, as to whether or not you, you helped it come into existence. Yeah. Right? That's the narrative. Well, that's, like, you got that, it. that's just like evangelical Christian, um, uh, <laughs> minister, what is it called? Uh, Evangel- when you go evangelism evangelism, evangelism. yeah it's like yeah. well if you heard about jesus then you're gonna go to hell if you don't believe in him it's like well why the fuck did you tell me about gotcha. jesus then jesus yeah, right. gotcha <laughs> yeah it's fucked yeah i mean it's like uh, i love those i love those mental traps i love the mental trap of uh of predestination it's so fascinating like the calvinists and the and the puritans like oh hell predestination yeah predestination is Chosen. so like i can't imagine believing that like i was either born predestined to be saved or that i wasn't and to know that I want to sin and to be like, oh, fuck, I have demons living in me because I'm <laughs> so confident that I'm one of the saved. And yet I want to do these evil things. Oh, God, how do I get the devil out? Like, I really I know I would believe that if I if I were raised in one of those religions. It's so. Fun. Yeah. yeah if, you, if you looked your parent in the eye and asked if it was real and they were like, yes. Right. Like, right. It changes. Yeah. You. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. You know? Like, I remember I was a, a, a God fearing uh, Christian at like probably like. When, when is puberty? Like 11, 12, 13? I don't remember. 16, like, uh, whenever I was like, yeah, whenever I began uh, thinking about masturbation, for whatever reason, that period of time, 
I was actually like dumb enough to be convinced that like hell was real because all the adults in my life were like confirmed Catholics. And their honor code basically, when somebody legitimately asked whether or not the Catholic teaching of like hell and like damnation and everything else is like true or not, they're like, Yes, absolutely. <laughs> like, <laughs> like even like my, my my loving father that like you know didn't want to abuse me. Like he told me this this kind of thing, and like in my own head, I had just played Doom, so I'd been playing for like five minutes, fucking yeah, right. slot being slaughtered by Hellspawn, being like, "Fuck, I don't want to go there," <laughs> and being like really really pissed off and like self flagellating about like you know my my most uh. It, early uh sexual urges do, say, do video know. games cause uh, uh evangelical catholicism yes they probably <laughs> do yeah uh, and, and for everyone that's yelling uh at us right now uh it doesn't work because this is a recording but it's called roko's Bas- basilisk ah thank you it's the oh, ai nice. thing that we were ah, trying to oh, remember okay. the name of roko's basilisk. fuck yeah awesome um all right well um I think that does it. Thanks, Mike, so much for uh, coming on the show today. You can follow Mike on Twitter at Mike Lee Pearl. We'll post his handle in the show notes. You can check out some of his bylines at Vice and various other places. And check out the book, The Day It Finally Ends. And if you want to pick up my book, I used to sell them myself to get around Amazon, um, but uh, I ran out. Um, so you can get those off of, uh, the Scribner website or from, uh, bookshop.org. Um, please don't use Amazon. Uh, and that about does it for plugs. This was great. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you so much. So we talked, we are a couple of weeks ago. Our wildflower was that, uh, coal, uh, was coal, Consumption was lower than renewables energy consumption for the longest, I don't know. Longest period of time in the United States. Yeah, yeah. you heard it. Um, And so today, coming from The Guardian, the coal industry will never recover after coronavirus pandemic, experts say. The crisis has proved renewable energy is now a safer investment and accelerated the shift. Yeah, so like one thing that um, is talked about uh, less than it should be about uh, the environment is um, how often the way that uh, sources of energy um, work on the stock market is really has like almost everything to do with whether or not they're used or not. So if like if coal futures or oil futures are still looking good, like those are still going to be used and like companies that might either generate or transfer power uh, power being electricity, um, you know, if, if, uh, not like banks, you know, which transfer a different kind of power, right? Uh, um, you know, like it, 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 their their main um, uh, product isn't energy production; it's uh, their stock price and their ability to convince uh, like mutual fund managers and and uh, everyone that buys and sells stocks to like keep their stock in the portfolio uh, as like a usual uh, like a constant rate of return because that's usually for a long time what energy stock energy stocks were good for is just like very uh like always growing at a really steady rate um and now that's all getting thrown into into question and coal does not seem to be a a good um investment anymore well and technologically speaking it's shocking that uh digging dirty minerals out of the ground and setting them on fire and using that fire to light people's homes is uh more expensive and less efficient than 
taking what the sun beams down on us consistently all day, every day on the planet and using that. No so, more electricity rocks. Yeah. No more electricity rocks. <laughs> I, I, I think that uh, if that were to be the case also for oil and gas, which you can, I don't know, build a pipeline so you can send gazillion metric tons of the carbon emitting fuels with uh, for coal, they probably would have. They probably would have figured this out. But just the fact that it's not a series of tubes, but instead a truck that you got to like physically put the coal in to like get it to go to where it is. Uh, seems like a uh, one of the, the, the linchpins in the economic yeah. uh, viability of it. But uh, good fucking riddance. Uh, but at the same time, shit, that's a lot of people that are going to be... Uh, it's a lot of jobs. Yeah. Which is why we need a Green New Deal. You know, we need to... We need a massive jobs program that revamps infrastructure and switches us over to renewables. Um, yeah, we, really, need, we need something like that $4,000 tax credit for re-education that the oh Democrats God. just put in the last stimulus bill. What a Gotta fucking a code. load of garbage. Teach him a code. Like, you need to... And the fact that it's just a tax credit... So the, this is the, I, I, the imaginary American human being that this legislation is... I know this is far afield, but I just gotta get this off my fucking chest. Do it. There's some imaginary American who has 4,000... Who's in desperate straits and really needs help from the government, but also has $4,000 to front for job retraining and then wait to get that money back next April. That's the fucking made-up human being that this legislation is designed to help. Like, just what a fucking bass-ackwards way... Of dealing with this shit. Oh my god! And, Fucking and, liberals. And it's that the it's like the the um uh, uh coupon argument or or like uh, theory of change, right? Where you uh, um you give someone a set amount and you hope that they actually spend more than the amount that you're giving them, so that you can make a little bit extra. He's like, I don't know a single degree program that costs four thousand dollars. Certainly not one that'll get you a job. Yeah. Like you might the, be able to get certified in like, you know, uh, sophomore college level Spanish for $4,000. Yeah. Maybe you it. can get, take a GRE class for 4,000 bucks. Like I don't, I, I, I don't know what $4,000 is supposed to buy There's you. There's no job that you, that $4,000 will buy you entry into. Yet. But when we teach them to code a very specific thing that an AI can then arbitrage a bunch of other businesses around, sort of plug individual miners turned coders into the framework to like physically, you know, play their little cog part of the coding machine, you know? Eh? Eh? Yeah. 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 That's actually a good, I'll go ahead and just use this opportunity to segue to uh, this week's Kropotkin, which is going to be about the division of labor. Super short one. Hope you guys like it. Um, and it's basically just about how like, again, it's another critique of a, of a mark of an idea in Marxism that deserves critique, which is that like, you know, the division of labor, the specialization of labor is how we reach ever increasing levels of efficiency and productivity and blah, blah, blah. And Kropotkin is basically like, yeah, but that's like soul sucking bullshit. Like who wants to spend the rest of their life making the one sixteenth of a head of a pin, you know, just day in and day out forever. So yeah, that's this week's Kropotkin. Um, Hope you guys like it. It's super short. We're nearing the end of the book now. I think we've only got like two chapters left after this. So Fuck yeah. Uh, well, is that the same uh, section of the book that uh, Kropotkin goes into talking about the, the, the inherent value that um, various people who are on the quote-unquote better side of the labor division are robbed of? Like, the idea of, like, setting the type 
uh, on the printing press. If you're a writer, because like it, you know, these are the things that like help you get a like grounded, like aspect to the material world. And like, there's a satisfaction in doing them. And so like, you know, what I took away from, from reading uh, Kropotkin was the idea that like division of labor is both, it's fucked up because it allows us to, to focus so nichely, like you were saying about focusing on the one specific part of a pin to make for the rest of like your productive hours of a day. And on the other, it, it, which sounds horrible, but even on the other side, like the idea that I'm going to be a member of like the intelligentsia or whatever, and I'm going to get paid reasonably more than everybody else. But like my job is going to consist of either being a CAD monkey or like specifically only coming up with like a concept and never seeing it into fruition. Like, I think that well, I always yeah, I always had that problem when I was in academia was lacking the physical labor and the social interaction and like the stuff. That's why I went back to hospitality while I was completing my degrees and why I went into it after I graduated was because like it is draining to be stuck. In, I mean, like, and it's it sounds incredibly like pretentious and privileged to say that, like, oh, it was so hard being living the life of the mind, me, me. But it does like alienate you from a really rich, uh, satisfying labor practice. Um, and especially if like your job is supposed to be saying something profound and original about <laughs> society. Don't don't, yeah. don't stress <laughs> out. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Then, like, maybe you should like be, be a in member society. of society. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, I think that's a really valuable contribution of Kropotkin is this idea that like there's more to designing the future than efficiency and productivity. Like, you also have to think of the human element. And um, my favorite element. It's the best element. Uh, I tremendous like plutonium. So, yeah, hope you guys enjoy that chapter. I hope you guys enjoyed the interview with Mike. Um, we had a lot of fun. And I think that'll do it, right, boys? Yeah. yeah you he- can find us on uh, Twitter. Ironweeds Pod. Find us on Instagram. Ironweeds Pod. Shoot us an email at Ironweeds Pod. At, at gmail.com. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, get at us with what you were doing when you listened to this very podcast, because the idea, Ooh, yeah. yeah, you know, like we, we want to know at what, what's, what's the lay of the land when the little ripples, you know, go out like on the pond. Some folks on discord were telling us that they listen to the pod while they do dishes and walk the dog. Um, also, thanks to everyone who on every platform imaginable told us uh, where we can get Kratom. 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 Yeah. yeah. Um, so uh, we'll get on that. We'll get on that. We'll, yeah. uh, we'll do a live stream getting all twisted on Kratom. Fuck yeah. I'm excited. <laughs> um, and, I, and I do think that we might do uh, the State and Revolution for our next, uh, oh! our, my next narration project. I think we'll do it. Um, Hell yeah. I'm excited about that. Yeah. All right. Uh, oh, and rate and review us on iTunes. F- support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash ironweeds. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Chapter 15. The Division of Labor. Political economy has always confined itself to stating facts occurring in society and justifying them in the interest of the dominant class. Thus, it is in favor of the division of labor created by industry. Having found it profitable to capitalists, it has set it up as a principle. Look at the village smith, said Adam Smith, the father of modern political economy. 
If he has never been accustomed to making nails, he will only succeed by hard toil in forging two to three hundred a day, and even then they will be bad. But if this same smith has never done anything but nails, he will easily supply as many as two thousand three hundred in the course of a day. And Smith hastened to the conclusion, divide labor, specialize, go on specializing. Let us have smiths who only know how to make heads or points of nails, and by this means we shall produce more. We shall grow rich. That a smith sentenced for life to the making of heads of nails would lose all interest in his work, would be entirely at the mercy of his employer with his limited handicraft, would be out of work four months out of twelve, and that his wages would decrease when he could be easily replaced by an apprentice, Smith did not think of it when he exclaimed, Long live the division of labor. This is the real gold mine that will enrich the nation. And all joined in the cry. And later on, when a Sismondi or a J.B. Say began to understand that the division of labor, instead of enriching the whole nation, only enriches the rich, and that the worker, who for life is doomed to make the eighteenth part of a pin, grows stupid and sinks into poverty. What did official economists propose? Nothing. They did not say to themselves that by a lifelong grind at one and the same mechanical toil, the worker would lose his intelligence and his spirit of invention, and that, on the contrary, a variety of occupations would result in considerably augmenting the productivity of a nation. But this is the very issue now before us. If, however, only economists preach the permanent and often hereditary division of labor, we might allow them to preach it as much as they pleased. But ideas taught by doctors of science filter into men's minds and pervert them. And from repeatedly hearing the division of labor, profits, interest, credit, etc., spoken of as problems long since solved, men, and workers too, end by arguing like economists and by venerating the same fetishes. Thus, we see a number of socialists, even those who have not feared to point out the mistakes of science, justifying the division of labor. Talk to them about the organization of work during the revolution, and they answer that the division of labor must be maintained. That if you sharpened pins before the revolution, you must go on sharpening them after. True, you will not have to work more than five hours a day, but you will have to sharpen pins all your life while others will make designs for machines that will enable you to sharpen hundreds of millions of pins during your lifetime. And others, again, will be specialists in the higher branches of literature, science, and art, etc. You were born to sharpen pins, while Pasteur was born to invent the inoculation against anthrax, and the revolution will leave you both to your respective employments. Well, it is this horrible principle, so noxious to society, so brutalizing to the individual, source of so much harm, that we propose to discuss in its diverse manifestations. We know the consequences of the division of labor full well. It is evident that we are divided into two classes. On the one hand, producers who consume very little and are exempt from thinking because they only do physical work, and who work badly because their brains remain inactive. And on the other hand, the consumers, who producing little or hardly anything, have the privilege of thinking for the others, and who think badly because the whole world of those who toil with their hands is unknown to them. The laborers of the soil know nothing of machinery. Those who work at machinery ignore everything about agriculture. 
The ideal of modern industry is a child tending a machine that he cannot and must not understand, and a foreman who finds him if his attention flags for a moment. The ideal of industrial agriculture is to do away with the agricultural laborer altogether, and to set a man who does odd jobs to tend a steam plow or a threshing machine. The division of labor means labeling and stamping men for life, some to splice ropes in factories, some to be foremen in a business, others to shove huge coal baskets in a particular part of a mine, but none of them to have any idea of machinery as a whole, nor of business, nor of mines. And thereby they destroy the love of work and the capacity for invention that, at the beginning of modern industry, created the machinery on which we pride ourselves so much. What they have done for individuals, they also wanted to do for nations. Humanity was to be divided into national workshops, each having its specialty. Russia, we were taught, was destined by nature to grow corn, England to spin cotton, Belgium to weave cloth, while Switzerland was to train nurses and governesses. Moreover, each separate city was to establish a specialty. Lyon to weave silk, Auvergne to make lace, and Paris fancy articles. Economists believed that specialization opened an immense field for production and consumption, and that an era of limitless wealth for mankind was at hand. But these great hopes vanished as fast as technical knowledge spread abroad. As long as England stood alone as a weaver of cotton, and as a metal worker on a large scale, as long as only Paris made artistic fancy articles, etc., all went well. Economists could preach so-called division of labor without being refuted. But a new current of thought induced all civilized nations to manufacture for themselves. They found it advantageous to produce what they formerly received from other countries or from their colonies, which in their turn aimed at emancipating themselves from the mother country. Scientific discoveries universalized the methods of production, and henceforth it was useless to pay an exorbitant price abroad for what could easily be produced at home. Does not then this industrial revolution strike a crushing blow at the theory of the division of labor which was supposed to be so sound?